Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. A Long Way Down is based on the novel by Nick Hornby, in which four strangers' lives are brought together in a most unlikely way. Premiering on demand June 5th, the heartwarming comedy co-stars Pierce Brosnan, Tony Collette, and Aaron Paul. Ping Pong Summer follows a teenage boy obsessed with ping pong over the course of his family's vacation in the summer of 1985. Starring Susan Sarandon, it premieres on demand on June 6th, the same day as theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Ed Singer. This week on the show, Allison and I get the old gang back together so we can all reflect on what compromised, horrible adults we've all become as we discuss the big chill. And later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And inspired by the big chill, we started to formulate a grand theory of cinema based on what it has in common with other movies with the big in the title. As all serious investigators of conspiracies do, we rented a storage unit and started mapping out connections to The Big Sleep, The Big Lebowski, The Big Bounce, and The Big Blue using photos, post-it notes, and yarn. We were so close to an epiphany. And then one day, those men in black suits burst into the storage unit and tore down everything and told us if we wanted to stay out of movie jail, we'd stop digging. So instead, we're going to talk about films about friendship. That was very elaborate. Thank you. That didn't go where I was expecting it to go. Twist. Yes. The big twist. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? They all oddly have the phrase the big in the title, and we didn't even plan it. No, that's not true. The first, the first pick is the film Tim's Vermeer. This is going to be available on VOD starting on June 10th. And it's directed by Teller of Penn & Teller fame. And in fact, it's produced by Penn and Gillette of Penn & Teller fame, who also appears as an interview subject in the film. And something of a narrator as well. And the film is about this duo's friend, Tim Jennison, who is an inventor and a businessman, a computer expert, a tinkerer. he's He's a real renaissance man. And one of his little side obsessions, one of his hobbies or... Things that he is loves to study are the paintings of uh, Dutch master Johannes Vermeer. And after spending years, I guess, studying, reading, looking at paintings, this guy Tim Jennison, he becomes convinced that uh, Vermeer didn't just paint his work freehand, which others have speculated as well, that because they're so detailed and so photoreal, uh, you know, decades, centuries before photography was invented, that he must have been using some kind of device, some kind of gadget to help him paint these paintings. And so the film follows this guy, Tim, as he tries to first figure out what Vermeer might have been using to create these paintings. And then once he thinks he has the device that Vermeer was using, he tries to use the device to replicate one of Vermeer's actual paintings as accurately as is humanly possible. And in this case, that means like literally building the room that you know a a, a replica of the room that Vermeer's painting was of and then using the tool to paint 
an approximation or a perfect replica, I, I guess. And the film follows him step by painstaking step. They called it painting with light. Vermeer painted with light. You can't paint with light. You have to paint with paint. And so what they're really talking about is this verisimilitude that Vermeer has that it's just pops. You see it from across the room and it looks like a, a slide. It looks like a color slide, a Kodachrome. And the painting scenes in the movie, I mean, we are literally watching paint dry at times <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and there's a lot of footage of Tim Jennison in his studio painting in time lapse uh, hours and hours and days and weeks and months. And I, I've talked with some people who found parts of the movie a little bit boring, a little bit dry. Um, but to me, I thought that really helped convey like the magnitude of the project and and the genius of Vermeer himself, really, that that even if you created a device, because some people say, well, if he cheating. right, he's cheating yeah. or the fact that he used some kind of gadget or some kind of optical device that immediately makes him less of an artist because, you know, it wasn't just painted from his imagination. So. And that's something that the movie is about. But to me, it like it sort of shows even if he was using a device, look at how much dedication and patience. And uh, there's certainly, at least in my mind, there's certainly an art to that, too. And I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. And I thought it was a really interesting film, not just about this guy's pros- you know, his project, but also about like the – you know, the the idea of the grass is always greener, right? Because this guy, Tim Jennison, is he's brilliant. He's literally a genius. And he's created things. He's got patents. He's a millionaire. I don't know how many times over. But really what you kind of sense in this is that what he really craves is, like, to be an artist and to be to have that sort of artistic side, which, at least in his mind, he doesn't have, even though what he does is, you could argue, a form of art. And I think what's interesting is he's, like, almost trying to prove that great art can come from intellectual pursuits and from tinkering and from inventing, which is what he does. And I, I find that that, that, that that thing very interesting, that idea that this guy who can do all these things that we would all love to do, the one thing he really can't do, which is paint freehand essentially – or be a great artist is the thing that he desperately wants to do. Yeah, I think also, it, you know, on those themes, it brings up this idea about why, a little bit about how we want art to be this act of, um, you know, like impulsive genius. That right. someone just steps up to the ca- like canvas and whips out this amazing portrait. And yes. like the idea that actually a lot of great art is going to be just painstaking and technical, right? you know, as well. And that doesn't make it less great, right. the idea that it was made that way. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a really interesting film. It's Tim's Vermeer, and it's going to be available on VOD starting on June 10th. Our next recommendation is something you actually mentioned in the top of the show, and I thought we would give it an extra plug because we are friends with the director, so yes. we might want to mention it. I figure that would be nice to do. I'm actually looking forward to seeing the movie as well. It's called Ping Pong Summer. The director's name is Michael Tully, and that's going to be available on VOD starting on June 6th. And I'll read you part of the plot description from the Sundance Film Festival website, which is where the film premiered. Writer-director Michael Tully creates the ultimate love letter to the 1980s coming-of-age comedy with this vivid cinematic time capsule. Hilarious in content and meticulously designed, Tully's film relishes making an artifact of pop culture through synth-heavy suspense, Super 16 shades, and classic characters with original quirks. Ping Pong Summer is a high-five to the 13-year-old inside all of us who is hoping to come out on top. And the film has an excellent cast, including Susan Sarandon, Leah Thompson, Amy Sedaris, and Judah Friedlander. And uh, 
I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I, I haven't seen too. it. You know, we're, we're, we are friends with, with Michael. He lives now in Austin. We don't see him that much anymore. But uh, he's also a, a, you know, a writer, a film critic. He's got a great website, hammertonail.com. And he's made a bunch of movies. What was he made? Septian and Septian, Cocaine Angel, and then he made a doc about the Silver Jews, uh, the band. So he's an accomplished filmmaker. Yeah, putting us to shame with yeah. his talents. Yeah. And uh, this is his latest, definitely his biggest movie with uh, some big movie stars in it as well. And it looks great. I've seen the trailer and really looking forward to checking it out myself. That's Ping Pong Summer, available on VOD on June sixth. And finally, uh, I don't know anyone involved with this film. Uh, it's going to be available on June 3rd, and it's entitled The Pretty One. And the director's name, I believe, is Janet Lamarck. And I watched the trailer of this one last night. I hadn't really heard that much about it, but it looks pretty interesting. And really, the, the appeal here is the star for me, which is Zoe Kazan. And the film played at the Tribeca Film Festival last year. I'll read you the plot description of this one. Laurel, played by Zoe Kazan. Uh, has always been the odd wallflower, choosing to live at home with her father while her glamorous identical twin, Audrey, also played by Zoe Kazan, possesses the confidence and appeal to succeed in the big city. When tragedy strikes and Laurel is mistaken for her twin sister, she makes the impulsive decision to assume her sister's identity and become, quote-unquote, the pretty one. So, essentially, she replaces her cooler, more confident sister, and she's the awkward, shy one. And, Interesting. And it's, yes. Yeah, and, and I think the, the premise has the potential to, to go into some less interesting places, but just watching the performances, both of them in the trailer from Zoe Kazan, I thought I would definitely be happy, even if the movie isn't fantastic, watching her do this. Playing against herself, she looked fantastic. You know, immediately you could just... They were just two completely different people, and I, I, it's a, I guess it's a gimmick, but I love when actors do that. Uh, the film also has Jake Johnson and Ron Livingston, so another very good uh, cast for an indie film. And again, it's just one that uh, definitely appeals to me. I, I, you know, if it sounds good, check out the trailer. I thought it was a very solid trailer. It definitely got my attention. That's why I thought we would highlight it right here on the show. So that's the pretty one available on VOD starting on June third. Our topic on cue shots on this episode of SVU is going to be friendship. Movies about friendship. Friends. We're great friends, Allison, aren't we? Don't be so sarcastic when you say I'm that. I'm sorry. We're, we are Stings. excellent friends. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, the film The Big Chill, of course, is a very famous, one of the most famous movies about friendships. So that's going to be our topic. Instead of uh, doing our, our general thoughts first... We're going to fold those into our recommendations, and uh, instead we're going to use these couple of minutes right here to talk, or I'm not going to say jack and squat, but <laughs> Allison is going to talk about her recent trip to the Cannes Film Festival. That's why she was not here for our last episode, 
uh, Mike Ryan from ScreenCrush.com was nice enough to fill in, and uh, he did a fine job. We had a great uh, time talking. But Allison, you were in the south of France. I was. I'm guessing. Poor me. Let me let me guess what it was like. Can I just guess? Please. It was hellish. I'm guessing the weather was probably. Uh, I'm going to say a balmy 85 degrees. <laughs> probably a light breeze coming off of the uh, the water. Yep. Walking down the the quasette, uh, having to watch only the very best in world cinema. What a nightmare it must have been horrific. for you. I'm kind of so surprised. Sometimes I had to sit down and eat French food, oh. drink some rosé oh, outside. Oh, oh, don't make me I, live how it. How did uh. I even stand it? I don't know. I, I'm kind of surprised you didn't quit your job and just come back mid mid festival in protest. It was it was for this horrible but I life. Made it through. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure it was a grand old time. But let's talk about the movie specifically. Yeah. Can you maybe give us just one or two recommendations, your favorite things that we sure. should be looking I'll, out for? I'm going to run through. I have five quick ones. Oh, to do. even better. Let's yeah. My favorite was probably overall it was two days one night the Dardenne film. Uh, they it's not like they've ever made a bad film, but this one particularly won me over. And it has them working with a big star in the lead role for the first time in okay. Marion Cotillard. You know they usually work with uh, tend to work with untrained yeah. actors, um, but she's great and really fa- like fits into the role very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about a woman who has to convince her coworkers to give up their bonuses so that she can hold on to her job. And she has a weekend to do it, which is why it's called Two Days. So they're going to they're gonna fire her. Her job is going to fire her right. unless she can convince her coworkers, coworkers to give their to, money back to the company so they to, can— To give up the bonuses, the year-end bonuses. Their year-end bonuses. Yeah. Um, and so— That's an interesting premise. It is. And it, it, it's interesting also because she's not— plucky she's not like naturally heroic she's this woman who's been suffering from depression oh boy and she's not someone who like is like i'm ready to fight mm-hmm. you know and that makes it all the better it was a great film okay uh fox catcher which we'll be probably hearing a lot more about towards it comes out in the fall it's going to be a big awards movie now that was supposed to come out last year yes, right and, and it wasn't they finished it. they pushed it yeah. back it's it, bennett miller who made yes. Moneyball and uh and capote steve Carell, channing tatum mark ruffalo based on a true story about uh, wrestlers who were sponsored by John Dupont of the Dupont family, but he's kind of weirdo, he right? Was, he's very been, strange. Uh, schizophrenic. He was right. diagnosed with oh. uh, schizophrenia, but he murders one of the brothers. Okay, and it's the story leading up to that. The what? I mean, it's very good, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about it later. But I think like what the 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 standout thing about it is that it sounds like incredible awards bait, but yes. it is much kind of darker and more complicated than that. Okay, it that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Wild Tales is this film from Argentina that was in competition. Right. It's just six it's like short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all dark comedies. And Are they all interconnected? No. And... Oh, good. Yes. I'm <laughs> glad all, to hear that. They're all like actually about kind of basically someone pushed past the edge of like the boundaries of normal civilized behavior. Okay. And that's what they have in common. The first story, which takes place on an airplane, built is it builds up so nicely. It's all before the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Got a giant round of applause. It was so good. Wow. So that's uh, Wild Tales. I don't want to describe any of the stories because it kind of ruins them. It's it's a okay. really good time. Don't, don't spoil anything. Yeah. Um, there's a horror film called It Follows that was in Critics Week mm-hmm. from uh, an American director who made The Myth of the American Sleepover. Right, right. And That's a good film. It is I think a, we've mentioned it on the show. Yeah, I think so. And this is it's kind of like a dark cousin to that. Okay. It's also set in the Detroit suburbs. It's very poetic, but it's got this very simple premise and I'm pretty susceptible to horror films anyway. Mm-hmm. 
I have never been so close to walking out of a movie just when I figured out the premise because I knew it would work on me so well oh, no. and freak me out. Was it a lot of body horror? No. You don't like body horror? No. It, but it's, it's bas- not that. Basically, it's based around the shot that I tend to find most scary, which is clowns walking, someone walking, someone the making a loaf of bread, approaching the camera. Oh, while making bread. While you making hate bread. bread. You're gluten. You're, you I, can't take yeah. gluten. So exactly. you get very and uncomfortable. Just, like, rub the dough on the lens. <laughs> couldn't even watch i was so crying so, so someone walking towards the camera yes why does that unsettle you so much i don't know but it just killed like i think the scariest shot i can think of is one from uh, twin peaks where someone's having it like uh i can't remember the character is having this like panic dream and bob like walks it's all from her point of view and bob like walks out of the side of the house and like walks straight towards the camera and climbs over the furniture towards her it is terrifying all right so it's basically variations on that again and again it's really well done, and they're, it, it's very effective. And that one was called? It Follows. Okay, and, and one more? One more, uh, Mommy, which is the new film from Xavier Dolan, who is 25 years old and has made five films now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it still has some, th- it had some things that I had issues with, but it's so, it's so exuberant, and it has so much potential. It's clearly Xavier Dolan is going to make a really great film very soon, but this is a very good one. And he's the filmmaker who likes to make outrageous statements about how, like, Titanic is the greatest film of all time and he hates old movies, he's essentially. Like, he's a little brat. Yeah. yeah. He's, uh, they, he makes it very... Hard to like his, yes, his work. Yes, to like him personally. He's also, like, this very kind of photogenic, uh, you know, highly groomed gay French-Canadian, you know, with, like, gorgeous hipster glasses. Ugh. And so, there, yeah, he doesn't make it easy to be like that guy. And what is what is mommy about? It's about a single mother, widower or widow of um, who's a mother to a fifteen-year-old boy with behavior problems. Basically, he's like really kind of fun and charismatic, uh, but he also has ADHD and has, has like a real temper, like a kind of almost violent temper when it flares mm-hmm. up. It's shot in a one-one ratio, right? An aspect ratio. So it's just that I've never seen this before and maybe never will again because it's very weird. But like an Instagram video, basically. They square right in the middle. Of but it's it. not shot with a, a, a cell phone or no, something. No, no. It's just the aspect the ratio, aspect ratio is, like, okay. is one to one by one. Okay. Uh, except at one moment where a character like reaches towards the screen and like pushes the screen wider, which is great. And things like that were wonderful. Uh, it's not quite there yet. I feel like the kind of larger framing of the story was based on these emotional stakes that I found really problematic. But otherwise, it was uh, it's really good. And he won tied with the oldest filmmaker in the competition, uh, Jean-Luc Godard. They shared the jury prize this year, Xavier Dolan. Godard did not show, though. Yeah, what a shame. And Xavier Dolan has declared himself not a big fan of Godard. So. That, right, that was, what I, <laughs> I, yeah, that was what I was sort of vaguely remembering, was yes. that he was, he was but, dissing on Godard. Yeah, but uh, it was a good festival, very good festival, and I uh, saw a lot of other great films, but those were ones that stood out for me. Well, uh, that thank you for the... It's great to hear about all these movies. I'm sure all of those films will show up here at some point. Yes. They sound they sound pretty commercial. They sound like they're going to get distributors, and yeah. especially for SVU, you know, they're going to pop up at the very least on VOD and, right. and online. The, and ones stuff. That, the ones that you'll have a little... It'll take a little while longer are the this year's Palm d'Or winner, mm-hmm. Winter Sleep, the three-hour and 15-minute right, uh, from tra- drama from uh, Bill Sa- Turk- yeah, Turkish filmmaker Nuri Bilga Ceylon. Yeah. Uh, which we did even, Once Upon a Time in people, Anatolia, which yeah. I think we talked about on the show. I, have. I really liked that. Um, yeah, I, didn't. Even, I didn't, I didn't like see that. it. I got shut out of mm-hmm. the big screening. Um, 
even people who are kind of fans of his, I heard describe it as grueling. So <laughs> maybe not the if most even commercial. If by his standards, it's grueling. I can only, uh, that's, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds pretty intense. All right. Well, that was cool. I'm, uh, I, you know, I, that's fine. I don't even need to go to Cannes when you describe it. You know, that, that's, I feel like I was there. There you go. And I didn't have to. I didn't have to endure that horrible Southern France weather. Hellish. And you know, eat and great French the, food and drink wine. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. Sounds, the worst. Oh, it sounds awful. <laughs> I don't do well in the sunlight anyway. It's fine. <laughs> so let's move on now to uh, to the cue shots to the friendship movies we're going to talk about. I did want to say just first of all that as I was uh, uh, compiling my list of potential options here. Two movies that sprang to mind, we've actually reviewed the ma- as the main review on the show before. So I figured let's mention those, mention the episodes where people can go back and watch them. If they're really in a mood to watch some friendship movies this week, uh, Francis Ha is a, was a, 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 a superb movie about female friendship. Yeah. We reviewed that on SVU number 48. And, of course, I know one of Allison's favorite movies we've ever reviewed on the show, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, <laughs> which is actually a really good movie about friendship. It's really about friends growing older and mortality, and it's, it's definitely – that's really one of the main things it's about. Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, we reviewed back on SVU number 18. And, of course, those are both still available on filmspottingsvu.com. If you missed them, you can go find them there. So uh, we won't be talking about those, but we've got some excellent picks do you want to start, Allison? Sure. Um, I will start with a you you picked films that are about two people being friends, right? Yes, I did. Yes, and so I went for ones that were slightly larger groups of people. I was aiming for, but didn't end up talking about any of the kind of traditional large group of friend movies that you might group with uh, the big the chill. big chill. Yeah, but I did pick two that are about basically three guys being friends. <laughs> And the first one is The Wood, which is currently streaming on Netflix. This is a 1999 film directed by Rick uh, Famuyi- Famuyiwa, uh, who was 25 or 26 at the time. He was a very young, uh, it's, and it's kind of based on or like draws from his childhood growing up in Inglewood. That's what the title is a reference to. It's also one of the earlier MTV films starring Omar Epps, Richard T. Jones, and Tay Diggs as Mike, Slim, and Roland, who are three best friends who grew up together in Inglewood, which is a suburb of L.A., And the film flashes back and forth between the present, where Mike and Slim have to track down Roland, who's having cold feet on his wedding day and has gone off and gotten drunk somewhere, and the past, when they were teenagers growing up together and going through a lot of things about meeting girls, about uh, dealing with this, you know, one of the girls' scary older brother, uh, and so on. Yo, you're a new kid, right? I'm from North Carolina. Yo, you play ball, Mike? I play baseball. Baseball. By the way, my name is Mike. Big Mike in the wood. Oh, <laughs> what's the wood? It's not what you think it is. Nah, it's Englewood, California. That's where I grew up. Me and my boys, me, Rolling, and Slim. Well, I never thought I'd see the day Rolling get married. Man, we got three hours till this wedding kicks off, and can't nobody find him. Tell that fool he could at least face me like a man. Get back in that car because you marry him, Lisa. Y'all act like you did in high school. Hey, Mike, I dare you to grab her booty. I will give you one dollar. You remember the bet? You remember the bet, Mike? You know I remember the bet. Do you remember the bet? You know, I, I picked it. It's a really sweet you know, sometimes a little clumsily made movie with some great actors in it. But it's particularly interesting, you know, a lot of these movies, um, like the Sandlot, uh, 
Grease, Now and Then, uh, you know, American Graffiti, Diner, a lot of these movies that have this undercurrent of nostalgia to them. Uh, they're, they're based on this kind of unspoken plea of like either remember this or don't you wish you remembered this? Like that, uh, and, and while they tend to be kind of like on different places on the scale in terms of class and like depicting characters and different economic statuses, they tend to be pretty overwhelmingly white. And so uh, there's a inherent freshness of the kind of idea of this movie being about a middle-class eighties black childhood. Mm -hmm. And also it, as it builds up to jokes or scenarios that look like they're going to be un like pretty conventional and then takes a kind of smarter path on them. Even, I mean like a, a small example comes to mind of the main character is about to go to his first school dance. And uh, he has come from, I think South Carolina. So now he's in LA. He doesn't know a lot. He doesn't know how to dance. He's not sure how to, he's going to deal with this. So he's practicing dancing in the mirror with a stuffed animal and his mom comes in and sees him and he doesn't see her and the usual reaction would be like turns around and is caught and like that's the punchline basically uh instead he turns around and is caught he's like embarrassed explains what he's doing and then his mom sits down and talks like they talk a bit about like how he's doing in school and fitting in and about uh who's the girl you're trying to impress and all of that and the just the kind of humanity of that to have it not be the usual beats and to have him actually have a conversation and ha have her understand exactly what's going on was really sweet. And, and there's another scene in which the main character finally loses his virginity. And it's this awkward, funny sequence that just handled very, it's handled really nicely, particularly in, with regard to the girl in question. So, you know, it's, it's not a perfect film. It's definitely a little rickety. There are weird things like in the beginning, Omar Epps talks to the camera for a while and then he basically stops. <laughs> so like, like they, they decided the device didn't work, but couldn't reshoot. Um, but it is, it's got some really, really lovely performances and the flashback sequences in particular, like the childhood sequences in particular are just not the kind of thing I think I've ever seen on TV and they're very well done or ever seen on film and they're very well done. Um, so that is The Wood. It is currently streaming on Netflix. Okay. My first pick, I think, definitely qualifies as both a nostalgic film and, how did you put it, overwhelmingly white? <laughs> it's definitely both of those things. Uh, it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, directed by George Roy Hill and uh, streaming on Netflix. And it was just one of the, you know, I, tr I tried to go with, the for, for this list, just kind of like the movies that came to mind that jumped to my mind first and that and that weren't the most uh, widely seen. Like, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is a classic, but now it's how many decades old, and I wonder how many people have actually seen it. And it's been a while since I actually watched it. And what's funny is that you remember it as this great story of a friendship, you know, Butch and Sundance. Butch Cassidy, of course, played by Paul Newman, and uh, Sundance Kid is... Uh, Robert Redford, <laughs> and I guy. guess I guess that's where he got the name for the Sundance <laughs> Film Festival. I just put that together just now, but uh, the thing about it is, it's you know, like it is a it is a, a great movie about friendship, but it's not, you know, it's not a movie that's like overtly about friendship. It's not about them saying, "Boy, we are," you know, like I'll always be there for you, Butch, and like Sundance, you're my best bud. It's it's sort of it's like a really good movie. It though, does. I mean, if I wrote it, that's what I would have <laughs> written. But that's not what uh, the film does. 
which is, you know, it's it's more about their friendship in action, which is mostly them being sort of on the run from the law. They uh, they after this very nostalgic opening, which is all sepia toned, uh, and then th- they they decide to rob this train both in both directions on the tracks like it's gonna they're gonna rob it in one way and then because if they rob it once no one everyone will assume it'll be safe on the way back they're gonna rob it on the way back as well and after they rob it the second time the the train the company the bank whatever is that owns the train essentially has sent this posse after them to hunt them down and kill them and they just won't stop the, it was funny we're watching this movie yesterday again i was like the only movie that this reminds me of is the terminator they are kind of like this terminator like force that you know they won't stop and so they kind of have to keep running and running and and they jump off of a cliff and eventually they 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 go down to bolivia but of course you know they they it's like they can't outrun this posse you ought to get to where we split up any time Just about there. How many of you think will come our way? I wish we had rifles. And they got rifles. But we got surprise on our side, right? The posse essentially almost exists as like it's they're almost purely metaphor too, because there is this undercurrent throughout the movie that the West is over, that this sort of idealized and this is like the nostalgia thing you were talking about, the idealized West where they could Sort of, I mean, they're bank robbers, but they're doing it in a lot with with seemingly no interest in any sort of violence. It's really just a way to uh, have a life without having to work, essentially, and to get to, you know, carouse and and pal around with your buddies all the time. That's basically what robbery is to them. It's just a means to an end, and it's not malicious or evil or violent. Uh, in fact, we learn late in the film that Butch has never shot someone in his entire life, even though he's a you know infamous bank robber. And uh, as they're on the run, they're you know trying to hide out with people and stuff. And uh, one of the people that takes them in briefly has this really intense sort of brief monologue where he says, "It's over, don't you get it? You know, it's all over." And he has he says something to them like, "You're gonna die bloody" or something like that. And it's and you really get that sense. The the symbol in the movie of the future is the bicycle. You know, in one scene we see the bicycle is the new newfangled invention. And later in the film, at one point, Butch, who's had this um, scene where he rides on the bicycle with Sundance's girl to raindrops keep falling on my head, which is sort of a strange thing to throw in there. Uh, he he kind of throws the bicycle away and says, future's all yours, you lousy bicycles. So you do get this sense that, um, you know, that – that there is this sort of passing time, this idyllic past that I think speaks to that nostalgic thing. And I, I don't know, does it mean I want, I, you know, I, I try to put myself in the frame of mind of 1969 or whatever it was when this movie came out and wonder if it was, you know, uh, speaking to, you know, how, how much society at that time was changing and wh- and whether the movie was, was about in some ways this, you know, trying to hold on to this more idyllic, you know, less complicated uh, past, perhaps. But I mean, that past is also the West is like violent and bloody. Of course, I mean, like, I mean the thing with that's... The ending is like c- civilization is coming. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. To most people, it would be vastly preferable. Yes. And uh, well, most times when there's movies like that, though, when they're about nostalgia, when they're about you know wishing for a past, it's usually a past that only existed in movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know that were. 
sort of uh, perpetuating these impossible myths of of the wonderful uh, greatness that you know the world is always always better five years ago, no matter what time it is. Even though five years ago we you know there was always less technology and less medicine and less everything. So, but what what I did kind of take away from it in terms of the friendship between Butch and Sundance was how they never even contemplate like splitting up. Like it's not even an option really. Like they, when they say split up to the rest of their gang, they stay together and they just, they never break up. You know, there's like, it's not even an option. Even like Sundance's girl, you know, in the end kind of is like, it's time for me to go. Yes. She leaves. There's no place for me here. Right. In your bromance. Right. Yes. And they, but they're like, okay, see ya. (laughs) Bye. Yeah. And I think that, that there's something very touching about their relationship, even down to their very last scene. I find very almost, you know, kind of emotional, that very last scene they have together where they're like reloading their guns and talking about, oh, we're going to go here. We're going to go there. You know, there's something very touching about that. And of course, Butch and Sundance is almost like a shorthand for a, a great friendship at this point, you know, or two people who are so close that they have like an unbreakable bond. So if you haven't seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it's uh, it's famous for a reason. And you can watch it now on Netflix. All right. My second pick is a recent film. It is The Kings of Summer, which is available for rent on iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, and some other places probably. The directorial debut of Jordan Voigt-Roberts, who uh, also did a short called The Successful Alcoholics, which I liked a lot. Uh, You can watch it online. stars Lizzie Kaplan and TJ Miller and is very funny. Um, This film uh, played at Sundance last year and came out in theaters last year. It uh, is about Joe, who's played by Nick Robinson, who looks very much like a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Not Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That old man, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You know, but looks like a kid, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. How's that? Uh, Like when he was on Third Rock? uh, Yeah, like that. Okay. So Joe and his friend Patrick, who is played by Gabriel Basso, are are two friends who feel like uh, oppressed by their parents. Their parents are so terrible to them. Um, and so they run off into the woods and they build a shack out in the woods in this clearing, this idyllic clearing, and they go to live there in along with Biagio, who basically just turns up, who's like this kind of weird kid played by Moses Arias. But it's this great fantasy of of running away and, you know, living in the wilderness. And what's so nice about the way this is portrayed is that Joe in particular is all about wanting to, you know, prove his independence. They're men, you know, he declares when they're out there. They've, um, they're adults. But all of the story is really about how childish his point of view is. And sometimes in kind of beautiful ways. When they're out in the woods, kind of just basically playing, uh, doing things like running through, uh, you know, running through the forest, goofing around, playing in the water what it kind of recalls and it's be- like a lot of these scenes are very beautifully shot these montages is where the wild things are a bit like there's this real sense of they're still kind of half children even though these guys are all 15 16 they're they're still this is a like kind of edenic place where they can uh, still be kids and still like really just like be unfettered by a lot of social pressures you made this i did it took very little time very few days My name is Jamal Colorado, and I have kidnapped your son. He is unharmed and will stay that way 
if you abide by the following rules. Jamal, Colorado. Anfernee, Texas. Deshaun, Utah. Yeah, I decided on the format of Denzel Washington, a black first name followed by a state. They try and live off the land, and they maintain this illusion of living off the land, but actually they go buy most of their food from Boston Market. The, the, the forest itself is, like, not very big. They keep kind of accidentally walking out of it, you know, that it, the, the place is only a mile away. And uh, we see their parents early on and kind of see exactly why they're feeling so mad that they need to leave, but also exactly why their parents are like great parents. You know, um, Joe's father is a widower and is played by Nick Offerman, and uh, who's very funny as a just a guy who's basically a little too sarcastic. And so the the breaking moment for him and Joe is over uh, a high stakes Monopoly game where he's a little mean. And then uh, for Patrick, his parents... Monopoly are... could break up a relationship. I know. It was... My wife and I have almost gotten divorced over games of it Monopoly. Was... What he was doing was also the kind of thing that will make someone can make someone cry, which is like when you team up with someone else and like kind of, you know, trade. Trading, trading yes, properties. Things like that. And then, you know... Adding the houses and then... Yes. And so... Hotels it, it, and then... It, it's, you know, makes him feel a little oppressed. And then not letting the game end until you're be completely like, we have to play bankrupt. This out. Yes. And then you have no money left and, and you're, you want to just stop and you're like, but you no, you could mortgage, mortgage that properties. property. <laughs> yes. I'm just spec- – this is completely – I'm just – this is, didn't actually happen to me or anything. I'm just making this up as we go. This is not like based on a real-life event or anything. Were you the one demanding the mortgages or were you the one having to mortgage your property? I'm going to be completely honest with you and tell you if I had been successful enough to force – my wife to mortgage her properties i would have however she had so destroyed me so utterly that i was the one who was you know she was the trump in this situation Got and it. i was the uh, and, she, and she was like no we're gonna see this through. we're gonna finish this it's that until you're really, i was it's, until it's, i was a crying right. mess it's genuine cruelty yes. also i feel like 90 percent of all monopoly games have like never like never get played through 99 percent. No. i'm willing to say one percent end in the game being over and there were other 99 percent end in someone flipping the board up in the air right being like or, we're or, done or just being like this game is stupid i'm gonna go watch tv <laughs> Yes, the traditional ending. Of and which the game so of which is it in uh, in the Kings of Summer? What do you mean? How does it end? Oh, he stalks away. See, there you That's go. It. Yeah, yeah. Okay. no, no. And uh, for Patrick, his parents, who are played by Megan Mullally and Mark Evan Jackson, are basically just like hovering over him a bit too much. You know, they're kind of, and they they joke with him and they embarrass him in front of pe- in front of other people. And because of this terrible thing, he also feels like we need to run away. And the whole film has a nice feel of uh, fantasy. And and uh, its arc is based a bit around how Joe and Patrick go from you know basically being boys together out here with Biagio, who is just odd, but also part- at, at, to having adulthood by way of a girl coming in, like a girl they both know who chooses one of them romantically and basically... It ends like the bliss ends, right? Because one of them feels resentful and jealous, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's uh, for a kind of a small film like this. It has a real sense of poetry to its depictions of this moment where you're like just about to go from being friends the way you can be as children to the more complicated realities of like high school friends, you know, and and all of the kind of grudges and power dynamics that that can hold 
this film is also uh jordan voight roberts is has done a lot of work for funny or die and the film has an almost distractingly good cast of a lot of funny people uh, i've mentioned nick offerman megan mullally um allison brie from community plays joe's older sister and is in some uh, relatively small scenes kumail nanjiani actually turns up in a tiny role as a delivery man and it, it's strange just because to see someone that recognizable in such a small role but uh, you know having too much talent in your film is certainly not a bad thing and uh, I, I thought you know for a movie that sounds like a pretty kind of typically quirky Sundance film this has a lot more kind of poetry in it and kind of reaches for that a lot more than I, I would have expected and its portrayal of the friendship between the three guys is 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 pretty great so that is the kings of summer it is available for rent on itunes youtube and other places okay i i missed that movie last year and i just didn't have a chance to catch it and i'm looking forward to it it sounds really good with or without the monopoly scene so the, i know that'll be hard for you to watch it's gonna be i might have there might need to be like a trigger warning <laughs> or something before that scene warning this this scene contains an intense an intense monopoly, monopoly game <laughs> All right, my last pick is uh, a very intense movie as well, and uh, I don't know if it's nostalgic, but it's also very white. I guess uh, I didn't really realize that until most, you, until most you, movies are white. Yeah, you called me on it this time, Allison. Now I feel kind of now I, I feel a little guilty about it, but it's Sideways, still my favorite Alexander Payne movie. It's available for rental on Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, Vudu, and Google Play. And the friends here are Paul Giamatti's Miles and Thomas Hayden Church's Jack. And they're longtime friends, and Miles is taking Jack on a bachelor's weekend to California, to the wine country, uh, before Jack, who is a serial womanizer, decides to finally tie the knot, get hitched, get married. And the thing that I like about the friendship in Sideways, and I think what really, why this one kind of came to mind for me, was the sort of way that the movie plays with friendship and time. You know, we, we definitely feel... Like, these guys have known each other for a long time through long stretches of their lives. But we also get the sense that they're, neither one is sort of where they were when they met or perhaps where they even were a few years ago. And that, you know, they're sort of in, to varying degrees, they're kind of in dark places now. Uh, and Miles is a struggling writer. Jack, I think, has been, uh, you know, a, a former TV star. And his career just isn't where it used to be either. And now that jack is getting married that's also going to affect their relationship and that's another thing that i like about sideways as well is that so many uh friendship movies are about like the unbreakable bonds of friendship like butch and sundance you know like that's a, their bond of friendship cannot be broken not even by you know the threat of death you know and sideways while they still remain friends i what you i think feel is just the way that so many because in real life, you know, the bonds of friendship, quote unquote, can be broken pretty easily, right? Yeah, you know, people like move, yeah, people, people come and go, get into relationships that consume them, like that's all right, of these things. That's people right, kids. Yeah, someone says one thing that really offends you, and you you play a game of Monopoly. Exactly. I didn't expect so much Monopoly on this episode, but yes, that's a good example. You play Monopoly with someone, and that's it. You never talk to them that's, again. Like I'm done. Yeah. Until we play some Operation, maybe <laughs> after that we can mend some fences. But yeah, that this. Just that the way people come and go and the way that relationships change over time or, you know, the way that you can stay, like, quote unquote, friends with someone even as you sort of drift apart. Uh, and really with any movie about 
friendship chemistry is hugely important, especially where it's like old friends because they have to feel like old friends. And I think Giamatti and Church really do a great job of that. They have this relationship that to me, it just makes perfect sense. You know, like even though they're not completely alike, it, it's one of those r- friendships where it's like two halves of a whole. Like you can kind of see what each gets from the other one. You know, like Miles is a little bit of a, you know, almost like a shut in, like Jack loosens him up. But on the other hand, you know, Jack kind of, you know, needs Miles to almost play his conscience, essentially, you know, so they're there. They, I, I really I'm trying really hard not to say the phrase they complete one another, but that's kind of what they do. Just try to be your normal humorous self. OK, the guy you were before the tailspin. Do you remember that guy? People love that guy. And don't forget, your novel is coming out in the fall. Oh, really? How exciting. What's it called? Come here, Miles. Do not sabotage me. If you want to be a Whoa. fucking lightweight, then that's your call. But do not sabotage me. Oh, aye, aye, Captain, you got it. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. Oh, no, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot. Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. And, of course, uh, most friendships uh, in movies or not are formed over common interests. And I think one of those interests that really has fueled more friendships than any over time is alcohol. And there's plenty of that in this movie there in wine country. There's some wonderful scenes of them drinking. And it definitely makes you kind of want to go to wine country and go on one of these trips, at least until like the later parts of the movies where things stop going so well. But the first half of the movie or so, you're like, God, this looks like fun. I would like to do this. And it is fun. I've never I've, I wouldn't know, but I'm guessing it's fun. I don't go I don't go to Cannes. I don't go to these places. I sit here and alone and watch movies and cry and try not to play Monopoly. That's my life, Allison. <laughs> That's what I have. Don't take it away from me. That's all I've got left. Uh, no, but sideways, I didn't have time to watch rewatch the whole movie, but I was looking at scenes uh, last night and just laughing and smiling and just going god I, I like going i wish i had time to watch the whole movie i need to go back and rewatch the whole movie uh because paul giamatti and, and thomas hayden church are just so great and you just want to spend time with them you want to be the third friend in the car which i think is kind of what the movie does is it it sort of makes you the third friend in that relationship which is really great so that's sideways and it is available now for rental on amazon itunes youtube voodoo and google play well, i bought the land about three years ago he and Chloe were working on it because there's this old house there that they were fixing up. It's really pretty. I can take you out there tomorrow if you want to see it. That's what I don't get. It's one of the things I don't get. I mean, he was really involved in that. I mean, it seemed to really mean something to him. I went with him three weeks ago to buy a table saw. Now, why does he do a thing like that? I should have known. How could you know? Nobody knew. I can't even believe it now. I don't care. I should have known. Now we arrive at our listener's choice section in which you, our listeners, voted on the film you wanted us to review. We went 80s this time around with the options being The Big Chill, Say Anything, and St. Elmo's Fire. And one of those groups of friends movies won. And with all apologies to the Brat Pack, it was not St. Elmo's Fire. The Big Chill, which was released in 1983 and which you can stream on Netflix, is really one of those seminal movies about a group of friends reuniting. It's even spawned its own little subgenre films that copy its format, like About Alex, which was at this year's Tribeca Film Festival, or Goodbye World, which is now on demand. And a listener pointed out The Lather Effect from 2006, starring Connie Britton as another one. 
Obviously, none of these films has managed the impact of the original, which was directed by Lawrence Kasdan and is both a portrait of a group of friends and a portrait of a generation. Um, it's 30-something friends all went to college together and reunite over a weekend after the funeral of Alex, a member of their group who committed suicide. These characters came of age in the 60s when they were lefty activists and idealists, but now they're parents and professionals, lawyers, doctors, and drug addicts, and they haven't changed the world, but the world has become very different. Um, the cast includes Glenn Close and Kevin Klein as Sarah, Sarah and Harold, a married couple. She's a doctor, and he owns a running shoe company. Tom Berenger is TV star Sam. Jeff Goldblum is Womanizing People magazine reporter Michael. William Hurt is Vietnam vet Nick. Mary Kay Place is attorney Meg. Joe Beth Williams is housewife Karen. And Meg Tilly plays Alex's younger girlfriend, Chloe. And over the weekend, the past is hashed out. There are some hookups, drugs are taken, and grievances are aired. Now, there are plenty of other films of this era that the Big Chill tends to get placed alongside, like St. Elmo's Fire, that tend to remain standards, maybe more out of nostalgia and kind of as artifacts of their era than because they are classics unto themselves. So my question for you, Matt, is how, where do you think the Big Chill stands as a film by itself and not just an 80s film? Does it hold up as a kind of as a good movie unto itself? I felt like it was an OK movie. I didn't love it. I think the most interesting thing about it to me was just how this movie has kind of been. Uh, co-opted by independent movies, essentially, that this was, you know, a fairly mainstream movie. Um, I think it was released by Columbia Pictures, you know. A few Oscar nominations. Yeah, and, it, and it, you know, I'm sure it wasn't an expensive movie, but, you know, when I, so, but it was, it was, a, it was a mainstream product. And yet what it really reminded me of, and I don't know if it reminded you of, was just like, it was like a mumblecore movie, really. I mean, it's a bunch of friends just sitting around talking, a lot of vignettes, Almost no plot. I mean, there's a there's a. Yeah, I mean, obviously they've been brought together by something. Something happens, but really, that's the most important thing in the movie. The big plot point of the movie happens before it starts, and brings all these people together. The suicide of their friend, who I think the big trivia point here is that Kevin Costner played that guy, right? And all of his all of his scenes were his cut face. out yeah. and have never been shown anywhere. So, you know, they've been brought together by the suicide of their friend. and But then the rest of it is, you know, by, as the title suggests, it's just them hanging out for a weekend. And there are some things that happen, but they're more subplots than plots. I mean, it's really about just what happens over the course of this weekend. And it did kind of remind me of, like, the prototype or the early vestigial beginnings of a mumblecore movie where you have a bunch of people hanging out in a house, talking— you know, there's some sexuality that happens and some awkward relationships. The past slowly gets teased out, and then the movie ends without having resolved very much. I mean, that's it was kind of what I felt like it was. And, I, you know, I think that sort of like what I was saying about Sideways, where you need to believe the friendships, I felt like the friendships seemed very genuine. I thought that the dialogue by uh, uh, Lawrence Kasdan and, and Barbara Benedict certainly felt believable to me like the world you know was very convincing uh, i wouldn't have minded if there was a little bit more going on you know it's sort of like you know as the title suggests also it's sort of just like a movie you kind of hang out with for i don't know what is it 100 minutes or something like that and then it's over and 
I don't feel like it's a movie that's going to really hang with me in a very significant way. I think there are th- some other things that kind of mark it as an 80s movie or at least from that time period that are kind of interesting to talk about. But as a standalone movie, I, I, you know, like I guess the soundtrack was certainly very, you know, famous and influential at the time. And as a as a platform for a lot of great actors who are still pretty young and it launched a lot of careers or pushed careers that were already launched to another stratosphere, it's important for that. But I, you know, I don't know that uh, beyond its legacy, it's that great of a movie. Do you? I mean, I I don't know if I call it a great movie, but I think I liked it more than you. Uh-huh. I it does I it does have that sense of it's so comforting, it, you know, in that it's just this kind of like warm, low stakes yes film about Very enjoying low. enjoying like the way these characters banter and the different combinations of them, yes, and, like, their their past relationships, and I I liked that. Like I I thought that that. There was there was enough there for me to definitely sustain it. It was just so warm in terms of its treatment of those characters. No, it's not like a hard movie to sit through or a movie that I even felt bored by. It's just like I think you really summed it up. There's not a lot. The stakes are very low here. But I think that the idea and maybe the reason that updating it seems so difficult for all of these indie films that kind mm-hmm. of try the same thing again is that there's something very specific about the generation that's being depicted here. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting in that you have all of these former hippies and like, yeah. you know, that that you you're going from you were you were coming of age in the 60s and the 70s. And now it's the 80s. Right. And not just are you. The you know the adults that you never expected to be when you're a kid because when you know when you're in college or a teenager sure no one have, thinks about that yeah you're going to be these big idealistic plans for yourself right but that it's the eighties you know this kind of shock of like this era and a conservative president and you know and like uh, the the specificity of that I thought was really good and as as occasionally the movie pushes it too hard like mm-hmm. they literally talk about this like yeah. it literally is a theme that they talk about but but it did add an extra heft to an otherwise fairly standard like oh we we were these people in college and now we're not them anymore mm-hmm. you know is that like that kind of time yeah that's definitely one of the more interesting things about it is the way they talk about how they used to be radicals essentially and now they are anything but radical i mean they are very very ordinary and and very kind of bland and you know some of them have kids and you know like you said like one of them is like owns an athletic company and you know there's an interesting scene where the one guy who's sort of the least tamed i guess you would say who mostly because he's messed up you know he's a vietnam vet and He's a he pops pills and he's just clearly you know just not happy and uh, he's sort of like not quite arrested but he kind of returns home having almost been arrested and he brings a cop with him and after the you know like the, part of it is just like that this like is a line uh, to the to the Kevin Klein character at one point it's like when did you become friendly with the cops yeah. and it's funny because. You're it like, just, you guys are grown-ups. Like, right, yeah. right. The, the cop, like... You, it, you have... This guy has a nice house. Right, and he that's what he even says. Cops, like, yeah, yeah this guy it. has protected our house on several occasions, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, you do. it does kind of hit home, like you said, that difference where if this movie was made today in those mumblecore movies that do exist, there's no, like, talk about, you've sold out, man, you, you used to be cool, right. you know, which, why would there be? It's just a different culture. It's a different time. But it, it was in 1983... 
you know, these they 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 came of age at a very different time and they were different people. And I did agree. I agree with you. That is probably the single most interesting part of it. And I actually like the fact that they don't feel like former hippies at all. Right. You know, that there's almost no trace of that in most of them. Maybe in Nick and the William Hurt character a little bit. And I would say in what happens with um, Sarah and Harold and Meg. Yes, which involves uh, one of them wanting a baby and not having, you know, having trouble conceiving. Yes, I agree. Some of you're right. There's a little bit of it there, too. And I thought of that as well. But other than that, it's not like you, you know, no one's named Sunflower. No one talks like it. They, you know, that they're from, you know, hippies from right. the 60s. Like real people. When, exactly. Like, the they, they have on. Exactly. They have moved on. And, it, and maybe they wouldn't even talk about it so much except for their friend dying and having that be the thing that really has them taking stock of their lives and where they were and where they are now. And I, I liked all that. Yeah. I, I mean, I did also like that it introduces some elements that I feel you would expect in a studio story to kind of play out a certain way, like the drugs, like um, Nick, Nick comes with drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Like he has pockets full of pills. He has Coke, you know, that he has like a brick of, of pot, like taped to the bottom of of his his car. car. Yeah. But that there's no kind of solution to that. Right. He's not like, well, I'm throwing, throwing the pills into the, right. like out the window. Right. And it's like, not about cl- he needs to clean up his act. Right. So there's no judgment there. there. Well, they're hippies. They're, they're former and, hippies. And, you know, like at one point he gives Glenn Close uh, Coke. You never see it on camera, but like, right. she comes off of it and she's like, can't stop talking. Jittery. But that that has no kind of there's no judgment given to that either. Like her husband's like amused by, mm. you know, like that, that, that the, those traces of the people they used to be. I I liked, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that at the end, while everyone has had their kind of storyline, there's not a lot of like, oh, and now everyone is making these big changes, right? Right. There's a couple, there's a couple of characters that are doing different things or, yes. But that it's, it's about a group of people who were really good friends in college, uh, are now different people, are reuniting for the first time in a long time. And understand the fact that, like, have a great time, but that they're, like, going to go off their separate ways again. Yes, in two days, we, everything goes back to yeah. the way it was. And right. that, you know, the the movie is really portrays the bittersweetness of that, Yes, you know, in a very upfront way. Yeah, and that is part of the reason that they're, the stakes are so low and so little happens. But I guess if you get into the movie, that's part of the that charm, too, is that it's not forcing some sort of BS kind of narrative everyone has an epiphany and right and everyone right. is a better person for this right yeah. and in fairness to the movie if that's what it was i would be sitting here saying that felt felt completely false it rang totally hollow that was not the way these sorts of things would go down so i'll, I'll give it a certain amount of credit for that it's not like i didn't enjoy the movie i just you know it's just not anything that really you know blew me away i think the things that i liked the most besides what we've talked about in terms of that uh, that subplot or that subtext about them being former hippies was actually I thought like it was a very well edited movie. That was something that I picked up on. The way that it's edited, you know, like certain mon- there's montages that are well the cut one together. In the morning after mm-hmm. uh, Glenn Close has done coke. And, yes. Uh, I forget who else. Uh, has, Jeff Goldblum's character has done a quaalude. Mm-hmm. Yes, like that was edited very cleverly. The opening um, credits I think were very well done. There's an, a sort of this really powerful shot where like you know we're, we're not even really fully what's aware what's happened yet. And there's a shot of a corpse's wrist with, you know, like stitches on it. I mean, yeah. that really, in an, I mean, that's, you know, this is not a movie that you would describe as a very visually exciting movie, but 
that is a really nice little compact unit of visual storytelling that or, tells you everything you need to know right there. Right. Or the scenes where they're all unpacking mm-hmm. and they kind of dump Comparing out. Comparing, their... yes, what they've brought. I agree. Yes. That's another part that, or like there's like a scene where everyone's sort of dancing to, I think it might be uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg maybe. And just comparing their lives in these moments without dialogue, even though it's a very dialogue-heavy movie, those scenes where we get to compare through, like, editing and montage their, where they are in their lives, I thought that that was actually some of the, the best parts of the movie, and I would have loved to have seen even more of that. Yeah, and I, I think that the dialogue has a nice kind of worn-in familiarity of people who were once, like, very, very close. And mm-hmm. it does have, like, moments of sharpness that I liked. I mean, I liked when they're in the funeral procession and Mary Kay Place's character is saying, the last time I spoke with Alex, we had a fight. I yelled at him. And uh, Nick replies, that's probably that's why, why he killed, he killed himself. himself. Yeah, which, which is, is really funny. Yeah, which is really good. And there's some, I mean, sometimes it verges on like, they, they're so witty at times where it almost, and the, and the editing is so sharp on like the jokes where they like a, almost every scene will end with a punchline yeah. where it almost feels like a sitcom. Yeah. You know, like they're editing it almost yeah. like a sitcom where it felt a little, they could have backed off a little bit from it. And it did inspire 30 something, right? I think loosely. loosely. I think, I think loosely. I don't think yeah. it's a direct but inspiration. You can see that you same, can... like why someone was like, this would be great on TV. Right. Like it. It does because it's like just this moment, this window right. in these people's lives. Yeah. yeah. Anything else we want to mention? We haven't really talked much about the cast. Were there any? Would you have a favorite uh, actor or performance in the film? I really liked Mary Kay Place. I thought her character mm. was really uh, was funny, and I really liked her relationship with all the other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kevin Klein's great, but he's a little too well, big. And what was with his accent? I know it's sometimes southern and it's sometimes yeah, not. Not a, not a good like accent. A little, he's like plays like. He plays the comedy too big, I think, mm. at times. Um, and yeah, he also he plays the comedy big and the shorts small. Did yes, you notice how tiniest the tiniest shorts shorts, shorts I've time. ever seen in my life? Yes. It's like a thong, it's, really. They're shockingly short. They're shocking. Like maybe are those like were those all normal of that era? Because I know that shorts <laughs> are shorter than, but those were like they're shocking. T- yes. He wears well because he he goes running every morning. Because he's an athletic, he runs an athletic he, shoe company, right? So. so he runs every morning, and so that scene sort of punctuates multiple times. Running scenes punctuate each morning. And he always wears the same thing, which is like his Michigan. They all went to University of Michigan. He wears a Michigan shirt or a sweatshirt. And the tiniest shorts where like his shirt is like hanging over. It almost looks like he's not wearing any yes. pants. He's like running it's amazing. without bottoms. The other the other of the era thing that I thought was really funny in that scene where everyone's unpacking. Yes. A shocking amount of blow dryers, even for the guys, <laughs> which I thought was so great. Yeah. And just... I, it is funny. It is interesting, too, to you know, because it's 30 years old, this film. And just to see like. If you you know like there's a lot that would be exactly the same about a weekend like this uh, in in 2014, but like so so different where like no one's checking their phones, no one is has to answer their emails. You know, there's something, you know, to get back to that nice nostalgia. There's almost this added nostalgia now to a movie like this where you go, God, it must have been nice to go away for a weekend and not have to answer your emails or check your phone or check in with work or. You know, that that, that kind of struck me, like, when they were all sitting around, you know, or when they watched television. They, the one time they watched television at all is yes. a football game. No, and they also watched the opening sequence oh, right. of the actor's to the, TV right, show, to Tom which Berger's, is, like, a hilarious-looking TV show. True. That's right, where he played, play like, T.J. Lancer or something, <laughs> something like that. Like that. <laughs> He's, like, Magnum P.I., yeah, basically. Maybe. You're right. They One time they watched the, the TV show. But they, but they don't sit around, like, Watch with it, the TV right. on talking. Like, like we would all, like we would probably right. do. Yeah, there is something really kind of uh, 
night like you, you want that right watching it you're like oh you guys spend so much time hanging out yes actually talking just yeah. actually hanging out with yeah. each other yeah and then you're like wait a second i just spent the last 20 minutes playing 2048 on my phone i have to rewind <laughs> the movie never mind uh yeah so it's you know it, it I, it's funny because i feel like this movie became a punchline and almost like uh, like it has a bad reputation, actually. Really? In some ways, yeah. I remember. Doesn't isn't there a joke about it in High Fidelity where they make fun of it? Or well, I mean, like all of the music choices are so clearly like the greatest hits. Yeah. Of, but but they're so exuberant, also. Yes. You know, like when they kick in. But I, and I feel like that's kind of the point, right? These people are not cool. Right. Well, like... it's, and it is kind of the ultimate like baby boomer movie, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is also kind of marked it in an uncool way as well. But I, you know, I didn't hate it. I I I. And I I just didn't. I just didn't love it. It's not like I was kind of hoping that I would be like, "Wow, this is a masterpiece," because it's it's going to be on the Criterion Collection soon. Yeah. I was sort of hoping that I was going to be like, I, I wanted to be like part you of. You wanted the, it to be a pop masterpiece. Yes, and I wanted to be part of like the critical reevaluation. Like this film is a pop masterpiece, and it needs to be reclaimed. And I don't. I don't feel that way. I yeah, feel like you're it's not it's, there. Yeah, it's a fine little movie with yeah. some nice, with some very nice moments. Uh, from the editing and from the writing and from the acting. Yeah, I don't know if I declared a masterpiece for me, but I I liked it a lot, uh, and I think that it's not just the kind of movie that I would happily watch half of when I caught it on TV. Though I feel like it works in that slot really well, it which would, is probably yes. how it's Endured, you know kind yeah. of maintained as this place in popular culture so well. But it did. It was I I think a lot smarter than I expected in terms of its depictions of the dynamics between the characters so that is the big chill it is currently streaming on netflix well that brings us to behind the eight ball where every episode we bring you three new picks two listener recommendations and one item chosen randomly from our netflix my lists matt you're up first are you ready yes as long as we don't have to play monopoly after this is over maybe no promises (laughs) no promises oh no (laughs) Ah, my nightmare. (laughs) All right. Three new picks. Okay. I'm going to start with a a, a classic. Maybe. Maybe. To me, it's the best of all time. The best romantic comedy of all time. Annie Hall with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in a rambling, autobiographical, uh, chronologically jumbled story of a relationship as it comes together and breaks apart. The famous story about the uh, the, 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 that weird, funny, infamous structure is that it actually came out of the fact that the movie was originally a murder mystery that uh, they cut out of the movie, or at least cut out of the script, I guess, and that when all that was taken out, this is what was left, were these collection of scenes, and that's how it wound up with this uh, you know, one-of-a-kind structure. Uh, maybe that could be uh, argued as the greatest work of revision in, in screenwriting and movie history, perhaps, but... Uh, I think uh, probably a lot of our listeners have watched it, but then again, I, like I, I, this is what I constantly struggle with, Allison, because because I, I feel so old, uh, like, it, and and that makes this movie that much older. It's like, have people seen Annie Hall? I think hopefully yes. Have people seen Butch Cassidy? I think probably yes, but I don't know. So if you haven't seen it, it just uh, was added to Netflix. Uh, next up, a newer movie on Netflix. Escape from Tomorrow, and if they ever build a crazy production story Hall of Fame, this film will definitely get in on the first ballot. And the story, that crazy production story, is that Randy Moore, the director, shot the movie, which is this uh, Disney World trip gone wrong, uh, in the actual Magic Kingdom without the Magic Kingdom, without Disney's permission. He used prosumer cameras, he was very careful with his planning, and he had definitely had a for sure had some luck 
and he was able to steal shots while his actors pretended they were a real family on a real vacation from hell. And I guess it maybe says something about Disney that while they were like crying and screaming and complaining, no one ever thought to you know intrude or no one looked at them <laughs> funny in the slightest or perhaps they did and they just cut well, that and stuff also, out like, everyone there is always holding cameras and recording themselves right it's How sort of you a, ever know it, right it's sort of brilliant i think if you hear the director talk about it they almost got busted one time but they were able to kind of lie their way out of it and that was it uh after the initial wave of shock and the feeling among early audiences where this movie kind of came out of nowhere at sundance no one had ever really heard much about it and then when they people saw it they were just they were blown away because it, it's shot at disney without permission and and when you see it it's it's got some weird sexuality there's some violence it's it's weird and it's very surreal it's kind of david lynchian uh you know, people felt like they were seeing something that no one would ever see or that Disney was going to suppress. They were going to sue the movie into oblivion. But that didn't happen. And at this point, I think the movie kind of has to stand on its own merits. And I don't know that it entirely does, but it is really incredible as a as a technical achievement, as as a, a work. I think I put it as a of, of cinematic chutzpah, the fact that they were that Randy Moore and his crew were able to to pull this off is really something to behold. And. I don't think it's a great film, but again, it's a great story, uh, the making of, and definitely worth checking out at least once. That's Escape from Tomorrow. And finally, a, a documentary that I enjoyed, another recent film. It's called Birth of the Living Dead, and it's about the creation, the reception, and the legacy of George Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead. Romero himself is the, the main talking head. He's talking about the making of the film, and uh, there's also interviews with critics and writers like Elvis Mitchell and Mark Harris. They're kind of giving you the background, the history, the critical context. I don't think it's a, 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 like kind of like uh, Escape from Toronto. This is not a masterpiece. It's a talking head documentary. It's a talking basically. head documentary, and if you're interested in the subject of Night of the Living Dead and you're not an expert on it already, uh, it's, a, it's a great watch. It's only 76 minutes. It's basically like a DVD extra, you know? It's. I wouldn't recommend someone going out and buying the DVD of Birth of the Living Dead, but you got a Netflix subscription. It's streaming on there for free, and it's 76 very interesting, entertaining minutes. So that's Birth of the Living Dead, and that, again, that is streaming on Netflix. I uh, did an interview with Tom Savini when that came out. Right. And I'm not sure he knew who I was or what this interview was for, but he, you know, I get the feeling if you can just call Tom Savini's house, he will talk zombies with you for half an hour. That sounds he nice to me. He doesn't need to know who you are. That sounds very nice to me. <laughs> it very, was great. Very pleasurable. All right. Two listener recommendations. All right. My first is from Joe in Astoria. He says, hey, Matt and Allison, I want to recommend Fatal Attraction, which I just watched streaming on Netflix. Though I've always been familiar with the film's title and basic plot, I knew nothing else about it and feel like it's not an especially well-known film anymore, at least for those under 35. This is like my Annie Hall thing again. It's like a fatal attraction. Everyone knows fatal attraction, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, it came out, was one of the biggest hits of 1987, and became a cultural touchstone and then pretty much disappeared from regular viewings. My interest was piqued when I read about it in Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho, and I'm surprised how effective I found it to be. It starts off as something of a Wall Street-era 80s museum piece, but has an engrossing story that eventually becomes quite disturbing and very intense. And what I especially liked about it was Michael Douglas's cold protagonist and how he's not an especially likable person. And though clearly unstable, Glenn Close's stalker is at least initially much more sympathetic. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm trying to think when the I like I seen Fatal Attraction on TV, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I've ever sat through, like, the uncut, you know, R-rated version. I have not. 
Maybe that's one we should do as a listener's choice at some point. We just did an 80s one. But down the line, I think that would be a good one. So thank you. I'm going to take Joe's recommendation as well. Thank you, Joe. So that's Fatal Attraction, and that's streaming on Netflix. And our other recommendation here comes from Kate, who didn't provide a location, but she did provide us with her Twitter handle, which I will happily give out if anyone wants to follow Kate. She's at underscore Culture Mouse. And Kate says, my favorite film of 2013 has just been added to Netflix, and I wanted to let you you and the SVU listeners know about it. It's called The Rocket, and it won the Audience Award last year at both Tribeca and at the Leeds International Film Festival here in England, which is where I got to see it. The film is set in Laos and follows a young boy called uh, Alo, who is believed cursed by his family after a series of personal tragedies, but sets out to disprove this stigma by entering a local rocket-building competition to win back the belief of his family. It's drizzled in sentiment, but a sentiment that feels organic to the rich culture around it. And Laos, uh, in its war-wounded beauty, is a place of magic. Uh, The turn by Thep Fongam as a James Brown impersonator slash enthusiast is a ton of fun, and the young leads are super charming. It's a modern-day fairy tale with heart and humor that will totally win you over. Keep up the good work on the show. That's from Kate. I, I'm. Not, do you know this film, The Rocket? No, I don't know it at yeah, all. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it either, but it does sound really good. I'm going to have to add this to my my list uh, right now. Once Allison is talking, I'm going to do that. So that's called The Rocket, and Kate says that is streaming now on Netflix. All right. One from your my list. You gave me number three. Three. You were hoping, I think, to catch me having added something very recent and embarrassing on here, perhaps. Or just recent. But well, yes, it is recent. I could be malicious as well. You that could. In be... this case, I don't think it's all that embarrassing. It's Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, the sequel. I saw the first film. I enjoyed the first film quite this a bit. It was good. I saw that. I think I might have seen that on Netflix as well. I didn't see that in the theaters. I just caught up with it after the fact. Um, and I, I missed this one in the in the theaters. This was another well, – the first one was a Miller and Lord film, the guys who did 21 Jump Street and now the Lego movie. So I like them a lot. They didn't do the sequel though. But I heard the sequel was pretty good nonetheless. So that's why it's on there. I'm going to – you know, some some night when I need something very light that, uh, you know, just – and also involves meatballs, uh, I'll be putting that on. So, yeah, that's my, my last pick this, this week, Claudia, with a chance of meatballs too. Allison, are you ready for your own I'm ready. rundown here? All right, let's start with three new titles. Okay, first up, new to Netflix, is Big Bad Wolves. This is a 2013 Israeli thriller beloved of Quentin Tarantino. It's about how uh, when a young girl is abducted, raped, and killed – A rogue cop and the girl's father both become convinced that this guy, particular guy, a teacher, did it for reasons that you don't get told. And it becomes basically a vigilante, like, drama slash comedy, dark comedy, in which their uh, loyalties shift. um, There's torture. There's all kinds of hijinks and vengeance. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino loved it. There you go. Uh, it was Vengeance also... and hijinks? Yes. I feel like the, those should be combined into a one word. Vengeance. Jinx. Yes. Uh, it was also a big uh, favorite on the genre festival circuit, so at Fantastic Fest and Seaches. So it's it's that ty- it played very well with that crowd um, and Quentin Tarantino. Big Bad Wolves, now on Netflix. New to Hulu is My Own Love Song, which is one of the great um, like odes to, like wasted resources in in movies it is 
from Olivier Dehan, who directed Ma Vie en Rose, and Grace of Monaco, which has gotten ripped to shreds at Cannes this year. But it was his first, I think, uh, American movie, a road movie through the South, uh, starring Renee Zellweger as Jane, a wheelchair-bound former country singer who goes on a road trip to New Orleans with her schizophrenic best friend, Joey, played by scenery-chewing Forrest Whitaker. There are also some original Bob Dylan songs. Uh, there is, uh, you know, plenty of wackiness that happens along the road. And basically, uh, Olivier Dehan wants to make the hokiest road movie possible, except also he's French, so he seems to be picking from entirely from other terrible road movies that he has seen. But uh, you don't get terrible road movies that seem to have as many great elements as this, including, you know, Oscar-winning actors and beautiful cinematography by Matthew Labatique, uh, who is the cinematographer here. So as a curiosity, it, it's something to check out. My Own Love Song, currently streaming on Hulu. And new to Netflix is God Loves Uganda. This is a documentary from Roger Ross Williams about missionary work in Uganda and basically about how, in addition to doing much needed things like helping to fund HIV relief, there's uh, particular fundamentalist groups from the US go to Uganda heavily pushing an anti-gay agenda. And, and that's a really serious thing in, in in Uganda, you know, they attempted to pass a bill that would um, put a death penalty uh, for being gay, basically. They, uh, a newspaper published the name of a hundred, a uh, hundred homosexuals that they said should be executed, the names and photos. Um, and actually David Cato, who is uh, an LGBT activist, sued the newspaper and won for this he is a character in the documentary he and dies halfway through he was beaten to death with a hammer and his funeral is part of the documentary as well so if you need a, a very effective dose of outrage this definitely does a job and it does a job basically by letting people talk um which is is something god loves uganda it is now streaming on netflix okay how about two listener recommendations first up we have a listener recommendation from keith who writes, I have been watching over the past few months as one of my favorite genre films has blinked on and off of Netflix, one week being available to view and the next mysteriously disappeared like some lonely traveler headed west in the early 1800s. That film is none other than the early Guy Pierce vehicle Ravenous, and I could not be happier to see it currently available to stream, no matter how short the window. Here's my quick sell on Ravenous. It's hilarious, it's scary, and it has one of the greatest soundtracks of all time by Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn of Blur and Gorilla's moderate fame. Moderate fame? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As a 90s girl, I dispute that. Watch, watch for the amazing soundtrack and stick around for the subtle genre subversion. Inspired casting. I could literally list everyone in the film, but I particularly love David Arquette as a character whose every scene feels like an outtake that Antonia Bird just left in. And of course, there's some 1800s flavored cannibalistic soup porn. I stand behind this film 100%. It absolutely holds up, and I feel it is the quintessential example of a film that was ahead of its time. You had me at cannibalistic soup porn. Damn right. All right. Thank you, Keith. And we have a recommendation from Ari, who writes, With We Are the Best hitting U.S. theaters this week, now would be a great time to catch up with Lucas Moodyson's two earliest features. 
the great, equally great Show Me Love and Together, both of which are available on Netflix. Show Me Love is a wonderful look at teenage love from a lesbian perspective, which captures both the possibilities and bitter truths of teendom. Together is a warm and slightly nostalgic look at a 70s hippie commune and tells the story of a newly divorced woman who moves into the commune her brother lives in with her two kids. Thank you, Ari. Okay, and one random film from your my list. So you gave me number 55, which is coincidentally, I Killed My Mother, which is Xavier Dolan's first film. Oh, how about that? Which he made when he was 19, a semi-autobiographical story about... Uh, a young man and his mother and the difficulty they have. Mother seems to be a recurring theme in Dolan's young career. Um, but yeah, so this was his first film. Mommy at Cannes was his fifth. He's certainly prolific. And uh, this, I Killed My Mother also played at Cannes, I think, in um, one of the sidebars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he has not been uh, quietly making his films in obscurity. Xavier Dolan. All right, well, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. An eclectic uh, bunch here. I guess they're all recent, but we have one television show season and two recent movies. I will start with the first option, which is one of the films, and it's called Filth. It's a film called Filth. Perhaps Filth Flarn Filth, if you're uh, an Eddie Murphy fan. Uh, If not, or either way, I suppose, it's written and directed by John S. Baird. And it's based on the novel by Irvin Welsh, who, of course, wrote Train Spotting, which, of course, inspired the name Film Spotting. And, of course, he also wrote the novel Train Spotting SVU, which inspired our, our show, Film Spotting SVU. It's a surprisingly dark comedy, given the subject matter. <laughs> the film is available for rent on iTunes and Amazon and assorted other outlets. And I'll read you the description here. It says, James McAvoy from X-Men stars as a corrupt, wildly out-of-control homicide cop who sadistically abuses his power as he manipulates his way through a murder case. Professor X, no! Uh, I have not seen Filth yet. Allison, have you I seen have it? I have not. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to naughty James McAvoy. Yeah, we're looking forward to, uh, to potentially checking it out. So, yeah, that's option number one. Filth, naughty James McAvoy. It sounds good. Allison, <laughs> what's option number two? I'm sure that was the, the previous title. That's how it was sold to me. very last moment, they changed it. All right, our next pick is uh, the continuation of something that we've actually talked about before in uh, episode number 40. It is season two of Orange is the New Black, which will be coming to Netflix on June 6th. They're all having another 13-episode season, and it'll all go live at once, so we'll try and watch as much as we can. I may manage to make it through the whole thing probably pretty easily. I'm a big fan yeah. of the show. Yeah, but, and, and my wife's a fan, too, so that'll yes. help. I'll be able to watch it with her. Yeah, I, I think we'll probably we'll get probably through most it. of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it'll be interesting to see also because this was kind of Netflix's – it became Netflix's sleeper hit, really. It had the least kind of flashy – hook in terms of uh, their original programming last year and it became like a big hit but people kind of discovered it right Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to House of Cards which has this Kevin Spacey and David Fincher and all of these big names Um, but this year now everyone's really ready and excited and it's got this giant fan base so Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see kind of how the lifetime of this uh, season plays out but either way, we don't know a bunch about the episode yet. Episodes yet, because you know Netflix is pretty tight-lipped about it. They do know that Jodie Foster directed the first episode, mm. and it will presumably pick up 
where the last season left off, which had a pretty dramatic final scene. So that is Orange is New Black season two, your option number two, which will go live on June 6th. Okay, and our final option is another recent film that we haven't seen that we're very much looking forward to checking out. It is called The Sacrament. It's the new film from Ty West, the director of horror films like The Innkeepers and House of the Devil. And The Sacrament is, uh, I believe it's in limited release, and it's also available on iTunes and Amazon, again, for rent. And I'll read you the plot description here. From acclaimed writer-director Ty West and master of horror, 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 horror is not an easy word to say, Allison. Eli Roth comes the haunting story of two vice reporters who travel to a remote commune to find a friend's missing sister. So essentially this is a, a, fa- it's a found footage-ish kind of movie, and the, uh, the, the actors who uh, are, I believe, A.J. Bowen, Joe Swanberg, and Kentucker Audley, they're sort of a crew from Vice, and while they're looking for this sister at this commune, which is kind of based around the Jonestown commune, uh, while, while they're looking for her, they are recording and sort of witness this incident this horrifying incident so we're ty west fans and also i love the idea of a horror film based around vice magazine if there's anything i find terrifying allison it's it's a crew from vice news it's it's the idea yes it's (laughs) absolutely absolutely terrifying so that's option number three the sacrament available for rent on itunes and amazon all right. Well, which movie or TV show should we review in the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 9th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, June 17th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And don't forget, keep emailing us your streaming suggestions to SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com so we can read them on the show. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.